This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Sylvia A. and Simon B. Poita Programming Endowment to Fight Anti-Semitism, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, Charlotte and David Ackert, Patty Asquith Kenner, Tiger Baron Foundation, Nancy and Morris W. Offit, Josh Weston. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Raphael P. Roman. In the midst of the seeming resurgence of anti-Semitism around the world and the ignorance about the basic facts of the Holocaust that survey after survey demonstrate, there's a new exhibition in the New York area focused not only on the horrors of the Holocaust, but also on the resilience of the Jewish community in places where it was nearly annihilated. The exhibition titled Missing Generations, photographed by Jill Friedman, is now showing at the Durfner Judaica Museum and the art collection at River Spring Living. The exhibit includes photographs of survivors returning on the 50th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Susan Shavlo is the museum's chief curator and director, and Daniel Reingold is president and CEO of River Spring Living, the nonprofit organization serving more than 18,000 older adults in greater New York. They join us tonight as part of our Exploring Hate Initiative. Welcome both of you. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. So let me start with you, Susan. Um, how did this ex exhibition come to be? And, and could you give us a quick summary of that history? Well, thank you very much for allowing me to talk about this very important exhibition. About three years ago, I met the family of Jill Friedman. She had passed away in 2019 and her family has the estate. And she has many different bodies of work and we were looking for something that would be timely, topical, and appropriate for us to exhibit. So we chose these works on the theme of the Holocaust. And Daniel, why did, uh, did this come to be at the Judaica Museum? Well, the, the Durfner Judaica Museum, which is on the campus of the Hebrew home at Riverdale, which is part of the River Spring Living organization, years ago recognized that we had an obligation to preserve the history of the Jewish population and the Judaica Museum was created. We've been very fortunate to have a curator as excellent as Susan, who understands the importance of the museum. And when we created the museum in the 1980s, through the generosity of two wonderful people, Ralph and Luba Baum, uh, we were able to, to amass a collection of Judaica because at the time, almost all of the residents who lived here at the Hebrew home campus uh, were Jewish and many were Holocaust survivors. Today, we still serve the Jewish population, less we have a, a diverse population that we serve, and we still we obviously have far fewer Holocaust survivors, which is why it's even more important to show this kind of work, to remind the people that, as you pointed out, may have forgotten or chosen to uh, to deny the Holocaust. This is very important that we use our space and this location to remind the world and and you know as you say more 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 than ever today um, that that the holocaust was real and that there are holocausts continuing even as we speak 
these photographs were taken in the early 1990s, but in an application for a fellowship to help her expand the project beyond Poland to surrounding areas of Poland, um, Ms. Friedman wrote that she felt there was an urgency to it because one, uh, ethnic cleansing was once again being perpetrated in Europe in the war raging in the former Yugoslavia at the time, and two, because so-called historical uh, revisionists were at the time denying the Holocaust had even happened. You've touched on this, Daniel, but I'd like to get both of you, the response from both of you. Uh, do you think that these times are equally as urgent for, for this history and for pictures, photographs that reflected uh, to be seen by as many people as possible? Yeah, I think these are um, urgent times for Jews and for other people. And I think that um, that's part of the message of Jill's work. She wanted people to have empathy. She wanted people to care for one another. She wanted people to understand that they had a responsibility to come to the aid of people who were different from them. And I think that that message in the intervening years is even more important, you know, today than it than it might have been in some of the intervening years since 93, 94, when she took the photos. Daniel? Yeah, the, the, absolutely. The, 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 those who choose to ignore history are destined to repeat it. Our obligation here is to preserve history. And Susan has put together a very powerful collection at a critical moment. And who would have imagined uh, when, when Susan first spoke to the family that we would be seeing what we're seeing in Ukraine and that, that the world is where it is today and that in these last three years, the incidence of anti-Semitism is the highest form of uh, of, of discrimination that we're seeing of, of all uh, of all ethnic and, and racial classes. So the, the importance is even more so today than it was when we first talked about creating this exhibit three years ago. It was important for Ms. Friedman not only to show the horrors of the Holocaust, but to show the resurgence of the community, the resilience of the community. Um, how does she manage to do that in this collection and in this exhibition, Susan? Yes. Um, there's some really beautiful photographs in the show, um, in the exhibition that show that. And I think a, a good example is she has a photograph of children in a kindergarten uh, that was started in Prague in the early 90s with help from the Jewish community uh, outside of Prague. And just to see, you know, those small children, um, and she cared very much for children, to see them, you know, having a good time, learning, playing. Another, another photograph that is a very good example of that is a photograph of a wedding that was taken, okay. taking place outside the, it's called the Old New Synagogue or the Old Neuschul, uh, also in Prague. So to see, you know, it's literally a community rising from the ashes. Now, from reading some of the things that she wrote at the time, it seems clear that Ms. Friedman was also trying to capture some other things. For example, she she seemed, and correct me if I'm wrong, but she seemed to be very concerned about the trivialization of the Holocaust, about the trivialization of Holocaust sites and of and of traditional Jewish communities that suffered so much during the, the Holocaust. Um, talk about that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's a double-edged sword when people return to these Jewish sites in Europe as tourists, whether they're returning to the site of a former synagogue or they're exploring the space of a concentration camp because they're coming to have a a learning experience. But there is also, especially when, you know, in 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 Krakow or Prague, when uh, when a cafe is sited, you know, right outside a synagogue or they're using Jewish symbols in connection with promoting the tourist in industry, there is some uneasiness. And so she had a way of, of pointing that out in her in her photographs. You know, and there are also pictures of of tourists looking through the old new synagogue and stuff like that. But it just struck me that that it that maybe it isn't so easy to tell the difference between those who are going for, let's say, entertainment and those who are going to these places, knowing that they're sacred space now, that they're that they're hollow ground. Um, for example, I'm thinking of the photograph in the exhibition of a middle aged man inside Birkenau concentration mm-hmm. camp, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And he looks like he's being disrespectful because he's climbing on, right. you know, in one of those bunks. But as it turns out, it was Roman Ferber, I think was the name, yes. one of the young, youngest members of uh, of Schindler's List. So, Daniel, let me go to you. I mean, is it that easy to tell the difference? You know, it, it, it is. I think the, the gift uh, that, that she's given us here is to use people to tell the story in her images. And, and you know, how we interpret those images um, tells us a lot, tells a lot about uh, all of us. It, it forces us to ask questions. I think it forces us to, you know, even as you, um, you know, might've confused uh, that particular individual. I think it's important that we become aware of our own um, biases and our own view. And I think she does that in a way that is very powerful. You know, Ms. Friedman, I'm sorry. I mean, she's a brilliant photographer, obviously. And and I'm sorry to confess that I didn't know about her before doing this segment. Uh, She's a brilliant photographer, but she was also had a fascinating life. She's a fascinating New Yorker. Could you give us a brief um, biography of Ms. Friedman about her her life and, and her work beyond this exhibition? Of course. Yes. Um. She is a street, a New York City street photographer. She was born in 1939 to a Jewish family in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And she graduated from the University of Pittsburgh. I think she was a sociology major to begin with. And right after graduation, she was quite a free spirit. You know, she she went to Israel. She was she was also a good singer. So she sang in a cafes in Jerusalem. She went to London and Paris. She was a good writer, too. In, in, and and she hadn't even picked up a camera yet. So this is 1964. She comes back to the U.S., settles in New York, works writing um, ad copy, Uh, She's in the advertising industry. And in 1966, uh, she picks up a camera. She has a friend or a neighbor. She's and and suddenly she's smitten. She's self-taught and she's, I mean, beautiful work. She documented uh, policemen and firemen. It's amazing. It's an amazing life. And and it's so glad that you're finally bringing her to the fore. So, So finally, in about the minute we have left, Daniel, where exactly is the museum? And if some of our viewers want to look at this, want to participate, want to view these photographs, uh, do they just have to show up? The, the uh, Durfner Judaica Museum is located on the campus 
of the Hebrew home, uh, which is part of River Spring Living in Riverdale in the Bronx. And they can uh, call up uh, the museum uh, at uh, 581-1000, area code 718, just to uh, let us know they're coming so we can make arrangements for them to come through our security gate. Uh, they can also go onto uh, our website. Um, I also want to point out that the Durfner Museum is part of a much larger art exhibit here on our campus. The museum is a designated Judaic museum, and I want to acknowledge the, the generosity of Helen and Harold Durfner, and particularly our dear friend Jay Lieberman, who have been so supportive of this museum. And in addition, though, there are 5,000 other pieces of work around our campus and our sculpture garden, which are of all uh, uh, from all different kinds of artists, which uh, your viewers sure. would certainly enjoy. Well, listen, we have to end it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for this wonderful exhibition. I'll see you there. Thank you. Thank you, Raph. Good evening, I'm Jack Ford. Tonight, as part of our ongoing Listening In series, we team up with the 92nd Street Y, one of New York's cultural hubs, to bring you some of the most important and thought-provoking discussions taking place in our city. Let's listen in on New York Times columnist Brett Stevens and Rabbi Peter J. Rubenstein in this candid talk on anti-Semitism, its pervasive nature, and how it's being used as a political pawn from both the right and the left. This conversation is part of our Exploring Hate initiative. So the last time we spoke about this, I said just short of three years ago, we talked about there were movements, certainly politically, on both on the right and the left, that were going to <clears throat> were demonstrating anti-Semitic leanings. Um, and then after Colleyville, you wrote an interesting article about the kind of the mutation of, of anti-Semitism and, and you know, what it had been and what it is becoming yeah. in this country. Can you review that and, and explain why you see that happening? Well, anti-Semitism is a little bit like uh, COVID. It is a shape-shifting virus. And because um, over time, uh, one mutation doesn't look exactly like the other, um, some people claim that um, one mutation has nothing to do with the other. So the history of anti-Semitism you know, begins obviously thousands of years ago um, and has a long gestation as a primarily religious hatred. Um, and then sometime after the 18th century and the Enlightenment transforms into a racialized hatred um, and then at some point becomes a political conspiracy theory, uh, which I think is fundamentally what the anti-Semitic uh, side of Jew hatred really is. It's, it's a conspiracy theory. And then as, as, as racial hatreds became um, uh, uncouth, uh, it turned into a national a hatred called anti-Zionism. But I, see, I think that there is a fundamental continuum between the old-fashioned anti-Semitism of uh, you know, going back to um, uh, 2,000 years ago to anti-Zionism today, which is a, a, an assault um, on Jews for characteristics uh, that are supposedly um, uh, especially uh, Jewish, uh, greed for either the money or the land of, uh, of, of others, a certain kind of connivingness and so forth. Uh, and so forth and so on. You know, this is a point that uh, has been made by uh, a friend of mine, uh, Pamela Paresky. Uh, and uh, it, I think it's, it's a really profound point, which is, think of anti-Semitism. What is anti-Semitism? It's, um, it's a conspiracy theory that argues 
that um, Jews are imposters and swindlers. So what did the anti-Semite of the 19th century believe? He believed that Jews, whom you knew as your neighbor or, or uh, someone in your town, claimed to be, let's say, German, but they weren't German. They were Semites. They came from somewhere else. They were Middle Eastern foreigners. And they were swindlers. And how were they swindling you? Well, they were swindling you out of your patrimony, out of your industry, out of your finances, and so forth and so on. So there was this combination. The allegation of, of anti-Semitism was these Jews didn't, don't come from here, and they're swindling us. What is anti-Zionism? It is an allegation that Jews are imposters and swindlers. And so, power is always, is, is always part of that, the right. sense of Jewish power. But, but just to complete the thought, so what does the anti-Zionist say? Well, these Jews claim they're from the Middle East, but they're not from the Middle East. They're from Poland or, or Galicia or, or, or wherever. And what are they doing in the Middle East? They're swindling the Palestinians out of what's properly uh, Palestinian. So it, there's this fu fundamental consonance between these two uh, hatreds that I think is just largely a mist. And the aspect of power is, is also essential, which is the idea that somehow or other, whether whatever the allegation is about Jews, that they control levers of power that well, others don't. After Colleyville, you, you talked about the obfuscation of the FBI in yeah. terms of its inability to say this is an anti-Semitic act. Uh, and that in, a, in certain ways, because it didn't fit the patterns that would define anti-Semitism in terms of the, who the, the victims were and, and who the villain was. So the obfuscation of the FBI bothered me, but bothered me less than the obfuscation of a lot of people in the media who should have known better. Um, you know, the FBI guy made some idiotic comment uh, that this was not, uh, um, that, that the attack was not directed at the Jewish community because the, this guy's motive was to spring a terrorist in a nearby jail free. Of course, it raises the question, well, why didn't he just go into a convenience store? Right? He went into a synagogue. I mean, Willie Sutton robbed banks because that's where the money was, right? Horrible disclaimer. I, I looked it up. Willie Sutton didn't actually say that, but it's a great line. Um, uh, well, this guy went into a synagogue because he thought that's where the power was, right? So the, the FBI was just, the FBI uh, man on the scene, I think, was out of his depth. What I found really disturbing was the extent to which major media organizations more or less parroted that um, line for about a week. And among at least my Jewish friends, it's, I think it's pretty much all we could talk about that, that week, that story after story kind of elided the fact that this was a blatant, aggressive, anti-Semitic attack. What's so disturbing to me, Peter, is you know, when, when that lunatic went on a rampage in Atlanta uh, with massage parlors, N nobody in my profession wasted a minute calling it an anti-Asian attack. Actually, there's a question as to whether it was an anti-Asian attack. It was a horrendous attack, but, but maybe okay, fine. When, uh, um, when George Floyd was murdered, uh, it was unquestionably, there was a racist component to it. And, and this was widely trumpeted in, in the media. And by the way, I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do. But why is it that anti-Semitism keeps being the hate that dare not speak its name? Why are people so reluctant 
to call out anti-Semitism, particularly when it's anti-Semitism that isn't being perpetrated by one of the usual suspects, like the guy who assaulted the Tree of Life synagogue or the marchers at, at, at Charlottesville. You know, people in, in to, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but too many people in my profession are happy to point out anti-Semitism when it's coming from the right and much more reluctant to do so when it's coming from not the right, whether it's the left or, 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 or someone, someone else. And that's a real problem that I think we Jews have in America, which is that we are now experiencing a wave. We are the, we are the victims, the largest victims of religiously based hate crimes in the United States, and you would hardly know it. Unless you're in Williamsburg, unless you're in, in certain neighborhoods, you would hardly know it uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, the extent to which visibly Jewish communities are um, under threat. I love those ads all through Manhattan, which say, if you don't think there's a problem with anti-Semitism, you know, walk around with a yarmulke on, on your head for, for, for a few days and, and see what you discover. So part of the problem you, you pointed out in one of your articles was that, you know, uh, Jews are perceived as successful and successful is not a good thing from the point of, uh, from the, point of the, the progressive left. Um, so we're, we're held at fault for that. Uh, how do you combat that? So I am really worried, and I'm, I'm going to use this term, which uh, woke, which I think most people understand what, what, it's what it's come to mean, not what it originally meant. But I'm very worried about the rise of woke ideology and the way in which it, um, and what it means for the Jewish future in the United States. And one of the ways, one of the things that concerns me is that it used to be that in America, success was admired. And I think one of the reasons Jews flourished in the United States is that here in America, when people succeeded on their merits, they were admired. In Europe, when people succeeded on their merits, they were envied. It was what's called tall poppy syndrome in, in other places, right? So America, I think because of a kind of a unique Calvinist heritage from the Puritans that worldly success is seen as a mark of divine favor, America had beyond religious liberties, it had this culture of admiring success. Now in the new kind of woke dispensation, and again, I'm paint, I'm overgeneralizing, but you know, for the sake of, of brevity, in the new woke dispensation, the, the concept of success has been replaced by a concept called privilege, right? So if you are well off, let's say, right? It's not that you worked you know, from penury to success and created a thriving business and, and you know, created jobs for people. You are privileged, right? And privilege is something that woke America wants to attack, right? Now, Jews aren't perceived as successful. Jews are successful. This is not, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I don't think I'm dis disclosing a great secret that Jews are an extraordinarily successful you, you minority. You actually wrote a, a column about that and, and you framed it differently from the way most people would frame yeah. it because very often when we talk about success, there are people publish these lists of Nobel Prize winners. Yeah. And you had a very different and I think proper understanding as to why we Jews uh, are successful. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole different, I mean, Jews are successful I think because of an experience historically of always having one foot in and one foot outside of the dominant culture. 
that, that's a hypothesis of mine, which uh, I'm not. Well, I, although I think it's true, because when you, you look at even in this country, you know, some of the medical associations that Jews began, they began because they couldn't. Right. They weren't funded by the American Heart Association, for instance. Right. I mean, it's a quality of thinking different, which um, creates skepticism, activism, uh, innovation, and so on. And so, so this kind, this notion that people, that when you have privilege, you should be penalized, is something that should concern American Jews because American Jews do, in fact, have a lot of success, which is now called privilege. Another thing that really distresses me is the assault on intellectual independence in the United States. It is becoming increasingly difficult, at least in certain areas. Um, on college campuses, in publishing, in other sort of fields, to be the um, outlier or to question a, a, a particular orthodoxy. One of the reasons why Jews thrived, particularly in academia in the 20th century, was the fact that so many Jewish scholars were those outliers who were questioning orthodoxy and in the process of overthrowing an or orthodoxy kind of created new disciplines new fields and so on when when you have a, a, a when you have a um, intellectual climate in which thinking different thinking differently um, is considered a form of heresy on an ever increasing number of subjects um, this is not going to be uh, favorable terrain for that Jewish habit of questioning, of doubting, of second guessing. And so I think we are this country is creating a, an arid intellectual climate in which that instinct among, I mean, it's an instinct that's, that's, that's not just among Jews. I need to be clear about that, but, but it's kind of a, a also has, has, a, has a Jewish character that instinct is going to be, I think, jeopardized. So this new kind of, a, a new kind of cultural hegemony is taken over in this country. And I think Jews need to be, to beware. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.